Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bowley. Whatever happens, man. 
Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew, the 28th chapter, the very end of the gospel of Matthew. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Today we'll be talking about the beginning of the universe and we'll talk about the last thing Matthew reports about Jesus. The beginning and the ending. You know, beginnings and endings are very important. Book publishers and TV and movie producers tell us that a book or a movie or a TV show must capture us within the first five minutes or we'll just discard it. But there is more for it's in those first five moments, those first few minutes, that we usually learn critical things about the important characters and the scope of the story and the story setting. We get a feel as toward whether this story is a drama or a real life, real life or fantasy story or a comedy or maybe it's a children's story. The beginning tells us important, critical information. Our Old Testament reading today is about the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the universe and God's interactions with people. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us a story about how the universe began and how everything we usually see around us began. It stretches back in time even before people were able to be eyewitnesses. Did you notice how poetic this chapter is? It's full of repetitive phrases like on the second day and on the third day. And God said and God saw that it was good. It's an example of what we call poetic prose. It's not quite poetry, but it's very close. In the beginning, God created. It's interesting that Hebrew uses at different places in the Bible, one of two different words for God. We've heard YHWH, which is usually pronounced Yahweh, and this name given by God to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked who he was talking to, is usually translated as I am that I am, which of course isn't very clear to us. But many scholars believe a more accurate and understandable translation of Yahweh is he brings into existence whatever exists. Yahweh not only created the heavens and the earth, but is the creative principle itself, himself. Creation happens because of Yahweh. That's the name Yahweh gives himself when Moses sees the burning bush, that bush that burns but it's never consumed by the fire. But interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for God that's used in Genesis 1 is not Yahweh, but is Elohim. El, 
or Eloah, means God, but Elohim is plural, it means gods. Yet this plural word Elohim is used to describe a single being in Genesis. How can this be? Well, let's look further into Genesis and see what we find. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the word used here is Ruach Elohim. And the Hebrew word Ruach, just like the Greek word Pneuma, can be translated as spirit or breath or word, or wind, sorry, spirit, breath, or wind. The Spirit of God was hovering, or the breath of God was hovering, or the wind of God was hovering over the waters. And so we have God the Creator and God the Spirit, both present there at the beginning of creation. And then in verse 3, Elohim says, Let there be light. And there was light. Elohim, that plural Hebrew word that means gods, yet is referred to in the grammar as a singular proper noun. Elohim speaks that there's light. Now the Apostle John, the best friend of Jesus, began his gospel, the Gospel of John, with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So going back to Genesis, we have this plural God, gods, that is referred to grammatically as a single proper name for God, Elohim. And there's the creator who is God, the spirit breath wind who is God, and the word that was God. We know them as God the Father who's the creator. God the Son, the word who is Jesus the Christ. And God the Holy Spirit, who flows throughout the universe from the Father and the Son. And all three are there in the first few verses of creation. Now some people get antsy when we speak of creation. See, about 110 years ago, a California businessman named Lyman Stewart, the founder of Union Oil and a devout Presbyterian, provided money for a set, a set of 90 essays to be published in volumes as the fundamentals, a testimony to the truth. Over three million copies were printed and mailed for free to many religious leaders across the country. And these volumes were published in reaction to a literary movement which treated the Bible as an ordinary book written by ordinary men who got many things wrong. Yet just as the literary movement scorned the idea of a document inspired by the Holy Spirit, the authors, the authors of the fundamentals went overboard the other way, ignoring the possibility that the Holy Spirit had led the Bible to be written for the overwhelming majority of people throughout the ages who did not have a desire or a need or an interest in learning about quantum physics or the details of exactly what the scientific definition of a species is or the detailed scientific origin of stars. And so the authors of the fundamentals insisted that you could not be a Christian unless you believed in a literal six-day creation that happened about 5,000 years ago. And many people in many churches agreed, and you might be one who agrees, and that's fine. Yet you know there are many people in these days who get stuck on that. 
and they seek to bring together scientific views and reconcile it with Christianity. And as we know, astronomers and geologists alike, plus those who study fossils, all believe that the Earth is significantly older than 5,000 years. Yet what's amazing is that these scientists, millions of people, often are strong believers in the life-giving faith that flows from a belief in Jesus Christ as Son of God. It's very possible to believe in scientific theory and facts and be a Christian also. You may be one of these people. But in order to answer people who have been kept from Christ because they were hung up on the six days of creation, let me show you how many have chosen to reconcile Genesis with scientific fact. You may be able to use these ideas to lead a friend of yours to Christ, a friend who is stuck on Genesis 1. If we look at the flow of Genesis 1 and 2, we see something very interesting. I want you to follow along with your copy of Genesis that was in your bulletin. First of all, God creates. First there is light and darkness. Just the way astronomers point out that the heavy concentration of dust clouds in the early solar system would have prevented anyone living on Earth from seeing a light source like the sun. And then the water settles out of the atmosphere and the dust settles out and a sky appears. And next, the water drains out of the mud on the earth and goes down to the low-lying regions forming seas, while the higher regions dry out and become the dry land. And then, just as scientists theorize, simple plants begin to grow in the seas and on land. And the sky begins to clear as the plants cut back on the dust storms that must have swept the early planet. And the sun and the moon and the stars can now be seen from earth. And then critters appear on land and in the sea and in the air, and then humans appear. Now what's amazing to me is how closely the biblical account follows the scientific evidence. Even though the biblical account was put together about 3,500 years ago and probably written down about 2,800 years ago. For you see, there are other accounts of creation that aren't biblical and don't come anywhere near following scientific evidence. For example, Japan's mythology says that the islands of Japan are the remnants of a goddess. The North American Indians claimed that they lived on, the, on what had been the back of a giant turtle. In Greek thought, the earth just came about and was the mother of the first gods. In Korea, it was believed that there were originally two suns and two moons, which made things too hot during the day and too cold at night until a god destroyed one of each. And the native Maori of New Zealand speak of a couple who had children that became the islands and tears which are the rain. A group of travelers ran aground on a reef but froze into stone and that became the South Island of New Zealand. Yet the Genesis account only needs us to stop reading the poetic prose that's written so literally and let the days of creation be long periods of time as we often do when we write a story, such as saying in the days of Moses and Aaron, and everything matches up to the scientific evidence. It's not bad for a story told by a group of shepherds who lived 3,500 years ago, had never heard of Adams, had never heard of anything that we would classify as modern science. 
Of course, perhaps the author, traditionally Moses, may have spoken with someone who was there at the beginning of time. Oh yeah, Moses talked with God quite a bit, didn't he? as he led 600,000 former slaves away from a superb Egyptian army which had chariots and pursued those Israelites. Could the stories compiled by Moses actually be true? Of course. For Genesis 1 was never intended to be a perfectly accurate, detailed newspaper report of what happened at the beginning, but instead was written in poetic prose, flowery, imaginative words, with the barest outline of what happened. Why isn't the time frame more exact? Perhaps because it really wasn't important until some critics appeared about 150 years ago. After all, when you told your children about how your family began, did you go into detail, telling what time and date you first met your spouse, how many dates you went on before you were engaged, how many days from the day you first met before you fell in love, did you... Did you tell details of the wedding, what you had to eat on your first date? When you talk about your spouse, do you describe him or her as, I love you because your eyes are set one and three quarter inches apart. Your lips are, are kind of reddish, a particular red which can be described by color schemes as, and then fill in the number, and they're a quarter inch wide quarter inch thick. Is that the way you describe? No. Instead you said, she has wide set eyes, ruby lips, her eyes sparkle. You use poetic words. The purpose of Genesis 1 was not to be a detailed newspaper account, it was to set up a story. It was to set it up with poetry. Who were the major characters? God the Creator, God the Word, God the, the Holy Spirit, and people. What's the scope of the story that is set up? It explains absolutely anything important that's ever happened and will happen in the future. The Bible is not a silly story about a wild night at the local prom. It's not a newspaper report about a particular week in time when such and such happens day by day, hour by hour, that explains why that bill was passed. It's far more important. It establishes that God created through God's words, with God's breath, absolutely everything. And God and all three persons will continue to be the major character throughout the entire story. It's a real-life story, a bit of a drama, a bit of a documentary, but after the first 11 chapters, we find it settles down to follow the story of a single family, Abram and his descendants, Abram who was renamed Abraham. And those descendants will become known eventually as Israelites after Abraham's uh, grandson Israel. Just as your family story probably begins in England or Germany or Ireland a couple hundred years ago with a man or woman who was looking for some land to farm or another family's farm, another family story begins in Western Africa when one man was captured and sold to local slave traders. The story of the Bible goes back as far as the stories were there, passed down around the campfires while the sheep and goats and cattle walked around. And these people paid attention. When you can't write things down, you have to listen carefully. 
You have to memorize the stories. And they had listened to the stories over the centuries, and they'd memorize them and pass them on exactly as they found them, because they knew that those stories were important. And they become especially important when over 400 years after the family moved to Egypt, a man named Moshe, or Moses, came across a bush that was on fire in the desert, and the bush spoke to Moses. How does this story involve us, though? We're not people of the desert. We live across the ocean, and we come from people who were struggling in the snowy, cold winters and living summers hunting deer in the forest of northern Europe while Moses' ancestors were telling the stories of the beginning. We became involved when God the Father decided to send God the Word as the Christ to earth to teach us more about Father's love. God the Word put on flesh, became a human being, and then taught us. In fact, he taught us that the Father loves us so much he would sacrifice his very Word, his Son, to put us back in a good relationship with the Father. And so Jesus Christ died upon the cross giving up his spirit on a Friday, accused of claiming to be one with God, and then on Sunday morning he came back to life once again. He taught us for another 40 days and returned to our Father. And 10 days later, the Spirit of God hovered over each of the followers of Jesus and spread to 3,000 new followers of Jesus the Christ, the Word of God that day. And eventually the Holy Spirit and the Word were spread in Northern Europe and then to America and the rest of the world. And that's why we're here today. For we're part of the great Spirit-linked body of people. Those early followers of Jesus, the Christ, the Word of God, you see, had listened to the last words that Jesus said when he was on earth. Jesus said, All authority in heaven... And on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Because those disciples believed that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, they went and made disciples of all nations, all groups of people. Do you believe that all authority has been given to Jesus? Then the whole command is for you too. They baptized him, and they taught him everything Jesus had commanded. And so Jesus was with them and us to this very day and will be with us to the end of the age. Years later, the Apostle Paul, who had established many churches, closed his last letter to the church in Corinth, Greece, with some words about what we should do in our lives. He said, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice, strive for full restoration. Encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. After all, what could be a better group of people to live with than people who are doing these four things? First, always striving for full restoration of each other a complete forgiveness of everything we've done wrong. You know, Jeremiah the prophet wrote in chapter 31 of his book, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. 
And this is what happened when the people of God turned to God to follow the commands of God the Son, who is the Word, that's Jesus Christ, and were baptized and received the Holy Spirit. The law was put in their minds and written on their hearts. No longer did they have to teach their neighbors the law. For all who have the Holy Spirit of God know our Father. We simply need to listen to the voice of the Spirit. Read the Word of God, which is both the Bible and the Son, Jesus Christ. And then God says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And that's the full restoration Paul spoke about. And second, Paul asked us to encourage one another. The world is very good at discouraging us. We all have friends who just drip and pour rain on any sunshine we have in our lives. But we're to encourage one another. And third, we're to be of one mind. When we disagree, we're to gently talk it out, coming to an understanding of the truth and what Jesus would want of us. And fourth, we're to live in peace. Peace with each other, peace with those who do not yet belong to Christ, even peace with those who are actively attacking us. And we're to speak with God and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit until we're at peace with God and ourselves. And that peace is something that we can control every day through our words of creation. Rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And Paul promised us a wonderful future. Paul said, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. From the beginning, when everything was created, Father, Word, and Spirit were there. When Jesus the Word died upon the cross, Father was waiting, and Jesus gave up the Spirit. On that resurrection morning, the Spirit returned to Jesus from Father, and the Word walked again. And even today, Father is there ready to listen to us. The Word of God is now both in book form and seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Spirit is moving in and around us today. We are in the ending times of the story. One day, Jesus will return to walk again with us. And Father will be there with us. And the Spirit will have never left us. And we will know that the ending of the beginning has happened. For eternity has no ending. This is not a movie or a book or a television show. For our life with Jesus has no ending. And that's a very good thing. Keep that vision with you always.
Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Bowling would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.